0: all right so um we will start with opening up for any questions from this morning's message on the growth of the messiah i'll be very surprised if there aren't any questions Um, let me get my notes anything at all yes Yes, if that, the, the significant factor is this, right? Mary and Joseph, Mary, go to, go to Luke. Here's the significant thing. Um, in Luke 1, Mary in her Magnificat, well, first of all, look at what the angel says to, um, to, to um, Mary. Mary. Mary is told, so what does what Mary know? Luke 1, 26. This is just by Luke's gospel. I'm not even going to attempt to harmonize this with the other gospels. What does Luke already what has Luke told us she knows? Um, and the angel said to her, verse 30 Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. She'll call his name Jesus, and he'll be great he will be called the son of the most high. Now there it is. The sonship theme of Jesus' relationship to the father. The son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So he's a kingly figure as well. He is he's the one who fulfills the... I mean, the, Right there you've got to... She, who knows her Bible, has got to be connecting this with Psalm 2. I've said to you, you're my son today. I've enthroned you as my king. The Lord laughs. He's installed his king. You can go read Psalm 2. Where sonship in the Davidic kingship converge here is one who is son of the most high and son of David she's told this then Elizabeth when she goes to Elizabeth um, says to her verse um, twenty. 42, she exclaimed to a loud cry, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me?' So she knows that he's going to be the Son of the Most High. She knows he's going to be the Davidic King. She knows he's the Lord, or at least she's Elizabeth's Lord. And then Mary, in her own prayer, says, "'My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior.'" Verse forty-eight. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. His name is holy, and his mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength through his army. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the humble from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever." So Mary understands a bunch of what's going on. And then Zechariah's prophecy, which we don't know if Mary heard, so I'll, actually I'll ignore Zechariah's prophecy. So Mary already knows, Son of the Most High, Davidic King, Lord. Right? Mary's got all that. Then people come and worship and do homage to him at his birth. And then she heard what Simeon said in chapter 2, about how this child, let's go to what Simeon said in chapter 2, The Lord, verse 29, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation and that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. So she knows this child is a savior that God has prepared, the light to the Gentiles. This child is the glory of Israel. His father and mother marveled. And then he goes on, this child will be opposed in a sign and he will pierce your... And then Anna rejoices. So Mary's got all that information, right? So let's summarize again. Son of the Most High, Davidic King, Lord, Savior. Okay? And glory of Israel. And yet, and I think we can, we can forgive her for this, um, over 12 years, she's kind of, Jesus has just become apparently her boy. And she hasn't pressed all this stuff out. In fact, even a little later in her life, in John 2, we see the same thing. Where, and it's, I mean, it's understandably a hard thing. I mean, for any of you who've had kids, um, you're there everything at first. They, they need you to be fed, to be clothed. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths because um, he needed the restraint. He needed to be kept warm, and you provide for them. And, I, mean, I can only imagine every parent who's ever given their, their daughter away in marriage has that feeling of separation to some degree. You know what I mean? And no, I want to continue as this forever. Well, Mary is just just thinking of Jesus as her little boy, as her son, and Jesus is her son. Jesus is also the son of God. And somehow for Mary in chapter 2, the penny hasn't fully dropped so the significance here, Wanda, is Jesus has got it, but his parents haven't fully processed it, which means this is one of the earliest times Jesus says this. I'm, I'm inferring that from the fact that if Jesus from age three is like, I gotta be off of my father's business, I'll be back later, you know, it would be commonly understood in the household. It's not commonly understood in the household. So Jesus might have known this for a long time, This is probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest point in his life. He says it clearly and directly to his mother because the whole point is, your your mother and father have been looking for you. No, I'm in my father's house. Different, wrong dad, mom. Wrong father to whom I am to order myself under. I mean, that's, that's the point. That's a contrast. And the fact that he has to remind his mother of that indicates it hasn't yet fully coalesced. So go to John 2. In John 2... We see a similar thing. And, and the point is that Jesus is making clear is as he enters into his ministry, and at 12 years old, he's, he's not entering into his ministry, but his parents, contra Roman Catholicism, Mary does not have any special inroad to God. Jesus loves his mother, but if Mary is gonna be a, a child of God, if Mary is gonna be saved, she, like everyone else, has to come to repentance and faith. She, like anyone else, has to turn to Jesus. She doesn't get any sort of you know, discount gospel light because she's his mother and so in John chapter 2 they go to a wedding at Cana and Mary comes to him and says they have no wine and Jesus now he is baptized by the Holy Spirit he is on his ministry and his response seems kind of gruff woman what does that have to do with me which is to say Mary I'm no longer functioning as your son. I'm functioning as the Messiah and God's son only. At 12 years old, he's doing both. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where I am saying somehow, we we, we have got ideas of how he came to that knowledge. Now it's possible, (laughs) I think unlikely, it's possible that Jesus, like John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. The reason why I think it's unlikely is because Luke has gone out of his way at every point to, if something happened to John, Jesus did it better, right? So J- John gets the angelic announcement, so does Jesus. John has the neighbors celebrate when he's born. Angels show up and the shepherds celebrate when Jesus is born. And then we got additional stories for Jesus. So it would be odd, it's possible, but odd for Luke to leave that detail out when it would be another instance of Jesus being superior or equal to John the Baptist. It's possible, certainly possible, but I think unlikely. If Jesus had the Holy Spirit from the womb, like John the Baptist, then Jesus, like John the Baptist, would be capable of superhuman knowledge, just as the in utero baby has... What I mean by superhuman is supra, above and beyond normal humanity. Normally, infants in utero don't recognize voices of strangers and rejoice, right? So it's supra or superhuman. I mean, I mean that in its literal meaning above and beyond what is the scope of man. So John the Baptist is doing something superhuman. And if Jesus had the Holy Spirit from birth, Jesus would potentially be able to exercise superhuman knowledge as well. There's no mention of Jesus walking in the power of the Spirit, going in the power of the Spirit, until he's baptized. He certainly could have been. The Scriptures just say nothing of it. So if he doesn't have that extra supernatural knowledge, then he is either... His parents tell him the stories. I mean, he could get son of the most high from Mary. He gets son of the most high, Messiah, Davidic King, Savior. And then he goes to his Bible. This is amazing. Then he goes to his Bible and unpacks those categories. What does it mean to be the son of God? What does it mean to be the Savior? What does it mean to be the Messiah? And apparently he's done that work already. It's also conceivable won't deny it that God sent him a vision or dream explaining all of this. However, Luke's point is to show us a diligent, studying child growing and growing and growing in wisdom. So I tend to suspect it's more the first option, not, but I, I can't, certainly can't be dogmatic. Um, but, but no, it's, it's an amazing concept to think that Jesus has to come to the knowledge of who he is. But if he doesn't, then he's not made like us in every respect. Because we don't come into the world as little babies. With a full sense of identity and self and talking, and you know, and those are those whole medieval legends that grow out of, you know, Jesus, you know, the pictures of him with the three fingers up and thing on his head, and they're cutting the umbilical cord, and he's blessing his parents and, you know, holding court. And that's not the picture we get from Luke at all. Um, he's going in the opposite direction. But yes, Elsa. I'm just thinking, you know, well. Right. Well, in Luke, in a sense, Joseph is his father. The text—let me see—the um, text is comfortable, in a sense, referring to him, referring to Joseph and Mary as his parents. So, yet this is the very text where he says, "My dad's house." So he's clarifying. But in a sense, you can absolutely call Joseph his father. Uh, the Passover—not um, in John. So I go back to Luke. Um, Luke two. Now, his parents went up to Jerusalem. So Luke is quite comfortable referring to the couple as his parents. And so, in a loose sense, let's not be too worried talking about Joseph as his dad. As long as we make it clear, his father is God. Um, and Joseph is not his father in that sense. And Jesus will never let those two categories shift. He won't even do that with the disciples. because I'm going to pray now to your father and my father, and your God and my God, but he won't group them in one lump as if they approach God together and on the same terms. It's fascinating when he does that in John. Your God and my God, your Father and my Father. <laughs> Why not just say our God and our Father? Well, because he's my Father in a very different way than he is yours, and he's my God in a very different way than he is yours. Um, so, so Jesus is keeping those distinctions present. But yeah, yeah, growing up, Knowing the knowing the stories, the people talking, the people who heard the report of the um, of the uh, shepherds until they fled down to Egypt. You know, yeah. Although by the time they showed it to Nazareth, right, there'd probably be another kid or two. I mean, we're living in a world without birth control. Um, the text says that Joseph didn't touch her until she gave birth. Clear implication of what happens afterwards. And so, yeah, the natural thing. And we know he has brothers. We read the passage. Your mother and brothers are outside. James, Jude, others, um, yeah. So it wouldn't have just been the three of them most likely at this point. It'd be very odd for a woman who's fertile and having kids to go 12 years without any others. So, yeah, any other, any other questions or thoughts on any of this stuff? I, I found this stuff incredibly fascinating and deep, and, and I, I just pulled Daniel aside midweek and just said, okay, just make sure I'm not a heretic here when I say these things. Because um, this stuff's just, wow, I never thought of that. Jesus studying his Bible. Yeah. You know, um, Jesus seeking out teachers, but man, anything? Anybody? Yes, I Lois. I was so thankful for your message this morning because I, I like, I'm surprised to sure hear you say that, because I was thinking that same thing. I've read this portion how many times, and to me, to me it was almost like something, well, okay, I'm getting to it, I to do something yeah. else. There, there's really a lot in here to think about, that I can't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, once it hit, what's he doing? He's learning. And why is he doing that? Why is this so important? Because Jesus, in the back of his mind, has got to know, I need to own inside and out this book before I begin my ministry. And here is the first opportunity that he has to sit down with world-class biblical scholars. It'd be kind of like, you know, if when I went together for the gospel, the same or something, we got to have lunch with like John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and all those guys. You would not be able to peel me away from that table you know, I once—I almost told the story. I once um, jumped—I I once stuck myself into a car to drive with R.C. Sproul from the hotel to his airport to his hotel. A friend of mine who was in student life—he was coming to speak at the Masters college was like, "I got to go pick up R.C. Sproul at the airport." It's kind of brag, and I'm like, "Dude, let me come." So I, I rode shotgun. <laughs> and I'm just leaning over the back of the seat the whole way from the airport. I mean, he's tired, and I'm just like chatting with him. You know, he's got his wife there next to him. I don't care. I'm just like, "So, R.C., what do you think about?" And yes. I just want to say, you know, I I listened a lot early parts uh least news of Ben's wife when the Muslim. Yeah. And it is so important for us to know this kind of thing because the Muslims know their Bible. Yeah. They know the Bible I think better than become Christian. Oh, probably. Right. And we, yeah, we need to not be afraid of the, I think I've told you this, but the earliest church heresy on the person of Jesus was not the denial of his deity, but the denial of his humanity because people were so uncomfortable with the implications, implications like what we're learning today of him being really human. It's okay for him to look human. It's okay for him to appear human, but to really be human when it means like, so you mean Jesus had to learn how to walk? Yes. Yes. So you know, I mean, Jesus had to learn how to read, yes. You know, you're, Jesus had to study his Bible, yes. It was so problematic, and they had such a hard time, well, then he can't be God, that they denied his humanity. And there's evidence of that in 1 John already, that there was this notion that, you know, he just looks like God. And that's why I was trying to stress so much this morning the reality that he truly and fully became like us. And give him the credit he's due. When he's astounding people, in his 30s, it's because he spent his whole life studying, not fundamentally because he's God. We don't, well, of course he does. Let us be properly impressed at a faithful, faithful, faithful man. The second Adam succeeds and the first Adam failed. Now, he did have the advantage of a sinless mind, an unfallen mind, but still, this is seen, at least in Luke, as fundamentally the result of hard work and diligence, not functional deity. And we shouldn't be embarrassed to admit that Jesus, during the incarnation, was not functionally omniscient. He doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. Now you can say he knew a lot, but if, if you don't know something, you're not omniscient functionally. What I mean, by, what I'm trying to say is this: Jesus, it's not like he stopped being God for a time, but he apparently was able to not access to not um utilize his omniscience for a time he was functionally not omniscient you, you get what i'm saying does that you track what i'm saying we want to be careful he doesn't it's not like he loses it it's not like he it's gone and removed from him because he is still god and he's worshiped as god as a humbled man but somehow he doesn't access it, kind of like voluntarily tying your arm behind your back, something like that. And he's not functionally omniscient. And and critics will try to point to Jesus, you know, he didn't know who touched him. Of course he didn't know who touched him. We never said he would when the woman touches him, right? And who touched me? And I've read people, no, he really knew. He was just trying to call her out. Well, Well, maybe. I mean, I guess that becomes an interesting piece of theater. But why would we expect him to know every person who touches him? He certainly doesn't know that in his in his humbled state, he doesn 't know the day or the hour of his return he certainly does now um, so we, let, we, let's not bear a burden we don't need to bear now we need to defend him from ever having sinned if anyone wants to say he did something sinful or foolish, of course not, but we shouldn't be embarrassed to say he didn't know something you know he, he didn't know you know the, the presidents of the United States of America the first. You know, twenty or so, when he was a twelve-year-old boy in Israel, thousands of years before they were born, he wouldn't have known that. Never claimed he would have. Yes. 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 Yeah. The best, the best understanding we can get. And and granted, this sort of guesswork. We see him in the gospels not knowing things. We see him in the gospels knowing things that take supernatural revelation. And this is where I use the example of Peter knowing that Ananias and Sapphira had lied supernaturally. It's not because he did an investigation. He just knew that, that they'd lied. Um, Elisha knows that his servant has gone and gotten some gifts from Naaman. Um, and there are examples of people with supernatural knowledge from the Spirit. My best guess, best guess, is that when Jesus exercises supernatural knowledge, It's a result of the spirit giving him that information. And so in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, I will stick with normal human knowledge, Father, until you think otherwise. And I'll trust that you will let me know what I need to know. Something like that. Because what you want to avoid, and I've talked to people who do this, is a a a split personality Jesus. Another one of the early heresies. This was, um, I think, called Nestorianism. Take the person's name and ism, so Arius, Arianism, Nestorist, Nestorism, and this is sort of Jesus is like Jekyll and Hyde, except it's human Jesus, God Jesus, and then whenever you're, and so really, whenever you're reading a passage, you've got to decide, are we looking at human Jesus or God Jesus, and it really is like he's got a split personality, and so when he knows all things, it's like God Jesus is at the front, and when he's learning here, well, that's human Jesus, and then you've got to figure out which one you're looking at, and he becomes functionally two people. And so in any given passage, he doesn't know the day of the hour. Well, that's human Jesus talking. And you want to avoid that? He's one person. He's he's 100% God, he's 100% man, and he's one whole person. And we don't want to split that apart. And so it's tough. I mean, we're balancing this on a knife's edge. So the best guess I'd have is Jesus trusted the Spirit to let him know what he need to know. The thing I like about that is it really means something now when Jesus lives my life for me because he doesn't have any special cheats, doesn't have any special one-ups because don't you have the Spirit? Doesn't the Spirit bring to mind things in your life that you need to know? Doesn't the Spirit open your mind to understand the scripture? Doesn't the Spirit convict you of sin? Go to Hebrews 4. Why this is such a precious truth and I think worth fighting for Aside from the fact that it's biblical and everything in the Bible is worth fighting for, but why it's particularly, particularly precious to me is one of the most encouraging passages for me when I'm in sin, when I'm hearts far from God, is entirely fueled and empowered by this truth. Okay? Now we're about to read a double negative, which makes things positive. So here we go Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize. So if you don't have a priest who is unable to sympathize, what do you have? One who's able, right? Let me flip that positively. So, for we have a priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now understand the argument here. Because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, and the reason, according to this passage, what enables Jesus to sympathize with our weakness? His own experience. Because I have a priest who can sympathize, because he went through the same things, I can boldly approach the throne of grace, not when I've done well, but in time of need. So I'm told, because, because I have this high priest who can sympathize, when my heart is far from God, when I have had to confess sin, when I'm been a jerk to my wife, when i have been spiritually lazy, I can boldly approach, and the foundation for why I don't think, I, and and you and I am sure attempted to do this like dogs with their tail between the legs. It's not boldly approaching. Or maybe I'll stick away from God till I read my Bible some more. No, boldly approach and it's all hinges on Jesus can sympathize cuz he's been tested like me. So the less you make Jesus life like me, the less that verse means anything. And so I want to fight biblically And and, and Hebrews 2, he was made in every respect like us, yet without sin. I want to fight for that truth. Now, certainly, if we're going to compromise his deity or compromise his sinlessness, we're not going there. But to every degree that we're able to, I want to let Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, mean exactly that. And I want his life to be like my life. Because the more his life is like my life, the more confidence I get to bold the approach when I screwed up. And so that, that's why I care about this. So, so that if we see, like, I have to study my Bible, Jesus had to study his Bible, as opposed to, well, of course he knew his Bible, it's Jesus, he wrote it. No, he had to study it. I have to study it too. Do you have, do you have a hard time studying your Bible? Do you have to put work into it? You're in good company. Jesus spends three days working at it here. Is that encouraging? That your high priest is, is, understands that? I think so. I, I certainly think so. Um, so th- th- that's why it matters. And there's other reasons it matters, but this is probably the number one reason, is if Jesus' experience is not like my experience, then I don't have a priest who can sympathize, and therefore I'm not going to feel very bold in coming before him. Because what I'm expecting when I screw up is God to be like, seriously, again? Get out of here. And I said, I have a high priest who, even though he never sinned, knows it's hard knows what it's like knows it's difficult I'm sure in three days and nights of Jesus t- sitting at the feet of the rabbis he grew tired he had to gird up the loins of his mind and focus he had to call upon his will and be disciplined to do that and so my high priest knows it can be hard sometimes studying your Bible I'm sure he does that, that makes sense that click yes. okay any other thoughts or questions yes Jeremy Focus, but when Jesus is in the temple running from the priest the teacher, it's a short amount of time between now and Jesus in the temple rebuking. Yeah, twenty years later. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, everybody we've been, in, in Luke's story, the question is, is Jesus learning the false teachings? I'm sure there's error mixed into their theology, but everything in this picture is peaceable. And it ends with he's growing in favor with God and man. And so far, in Luke's gospel, every priest, every temple person we've met has been a faithful Israelite. We've only met good guys so far, in the sense of faithful people. We have not met the, the hypocrites. and the, We haven't met them yet. We've met Zechariah, and his wife, who are both Levites. We've met Simeon and Anna, who's a, pre, who's a um, priestess. These prophetess, sorry, priestess, prophetess. Um, we've met faithful, godly people in the temple so far, right? And so until we start, until that tone shifts, and it will shift right at the beginning of chapter 3, 20 years later, I'm going to assume Jesus has sought out and found the most faithful believing teachers. That would be my assumption. The people he's sitting under have good teaching, and I'm sure mixed in with corruption and error. But these are people who aren't God's enemies, I would guess. I would make that assumption. Even the leaders in 20 years from now, there's no doubt that they know their scriptures. Yeah. They just apply them in, in ways that are beneficial. To only. Right, right. Right, but th- I think there's no reason not to think Jesus could find some faithful, um, saved, for lack of a better term, teachers who know and love God and love his word. He, for all we know, he could be sitting at the feet of, of Simeon um, or John the Baptist, de- no, John the Baptist stayed out in the wilderness until he appeared, but people like that. Um, so he, he didn't go and kick the rabbis out of the temple. He kicked the money changers out. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a statement on the Sadducees. The Sadducees, the big split is this. The, the Pharisees controlled the synagogue life. The Sadducees controlled the temple. That was the split. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see? Um, and, uh, and that was the split. So the synagogues are run by the Pharisees. The Sadducees run the temple. The temple's where the big money stuff takes place. And there is a rebuke of why if you let it become? Like, you're the one stewarding it. But his beef isn't doctrinal at that point. His beef is, you were given charge of the temple, and look what you've done with it. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. They were speaking of the Sadducees. He was also far closer to the Pharisaical tradition yeah. than he was the, the Sadducees. The yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let me, let me. Yeah, this is another good point. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees understand, just like every Every um, denomination, every, every um, tradition of, of Christian tradition is open to various temptations and dangers. We are much closer to the Pharisees than the Sadducees. The Sadducees to be the mainstream liberals. They didn't believe in inerrancy. They didn't believe in the books past Moses. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They thought, they thought Judaism was a religion to give meaning and value to life here and now. They didn't believe in an afterlife they're very practical people. They beat the modern day liberals. Let's, yeah, we don't, all this judgment in heaven and hell. Nah. This is about giving families focus and meaning and drawing people together and building community. That's the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the strict literal interpreters. The Pharisees were, they said, write it on your hands. By golly, we're writing it on our hands. He said, write it on your foreheads. We'll make some boxes and write them on our foreheads. Like they're the strict literal guys. And they just took it a couple steps too far and ruined everything. And we gotta realize we are much, 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 much more in danger of going that way than we are of becoming the liberals. You know, everyone's good and every God loves everyone. Everyone's Everyone's going to heaven. All the faiths are getting there. That's the Sadducee tradition. We're much, we're much closer to the Pharisee tradition. Um, Not that we're Pharisees, but that's the danger we have to watch out for. I mean, I have no fear that this church anytime soon is gonna go doctrinally liberal. Um, what this yeah, would leave and good right you should um, the danger is, is becoming pharisaical self-righteous unloving unkind unmerciful um, proud I praise you God that we do all these things unlike that tax collector that, that's the danger we're going to watch out for yes Yeah, almost all of Jesus' conflict was over who he was. (laughs) I mean, that's almost all. I mean, John the Baptist rubs them the wrong way because what do you mean we need to be washed? We're the good guys. We're the the Jews. We're the the light of the nations. No, you're a bunch of filthy, dirty sinners that need to repent and be baptized. But he would have found a lot of good teachers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The The big problem with the Pharisees was they were trusting in their own righteousness. The big, the big shift is between those people who trust in God and trust in his word and those who trust in their righteousness. The Pharisees had turned the law into something that could be kept. The point of the law was supposed to be, I can never do that. Have mercy on me. <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to read the law and go, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> I'll never do that and then just fall on your face before God, like that tax collector who beats his breast, won't even look up to heaven, be God, be merciful, propitiate for me a sinner. That, that's what the law is supposed to make you do. The Pharisees read the law and said, well, if we take that, Timmy, and that, and that, Timmy, that, and that, we tweak that, we can do that, we're good. And that was the big problem. And um, that was the basis of their rebuke. Not that obedience wasn't important, but their, their righteousness, and this is all Romans and Galatians, their righteousness was coming from doing those things. Their standing was coming from their performance of acts and rites, and not from faith in God. And, but that wasn't to everybody. And so, yeah. And even, even from people like that, you could potentially learn things about history, learn things about the harmonization of Chronicles with Samuel. People have done that work. I benefit from people who've done that work. You can go read Kings and Chronicles and harmonize them. It's really helpful when someone else has already done that. You can che- and all you have to round do is check their math. You know, it's beneficial. So even even if a teacher has wrong, one thing wrong in one area, you know, here's how the Kings genealogies line up, and we've studied this. Oh, that's helpful. I think you made a couple mistakes there and there and there, but that, that, that's time saving. That's useful, right? Um, so yeah, any anything else? Okay. Any other questions in general? Okay. I've got a new handout, and if I can get a volunteer to quickly hand it out, we've got 10 minutes, and we will see how far we can get. Thank you, Alex. No, one on each side. We'll go even faster. Fantastic. And I will tell you what, I will make a commitment that unless somebody here has some just burning, burning question, we will will devote our entire time next week to finishing this so we actually can move on from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to do a review of Luke chapters 1 through 2 and drawing major themes before we round the corner into Luke 3. Really, Luke 1 to 2 is kind of the prologue. If you're watching a movie, this is before the title sequence. And then we jump to 30 years later, which is where we stay for the rest of the book. And so I thought it's worth pausing and and having looked at it in detail, what what are the major themes here? So hopefully there won't be anything terribly controversial in my teaching next week. And so we can just focus on this. Okay. 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 Okay, understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just give you, by way of review, fill in some of these blanks for you. Predicted as a distinction of the new covenant. Um, the Holy Spirit was in, with, and around Israel, but never in. Israel corporately, only individuals. So AI is in versus with us. That's the big distinction. If you go read John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus said, "I will the Spirit who is with you, but will be in you so individual israelites under the old covenant received the holy spirit for a time but israel corporately did not and now the spirit was with israel and then the spirit will be with us predicted of jesus and occurred at pentecost jesus is the one who will baptize as it is said in the holy spirit in with or by the holy spirit um, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Definition I'm using. B, the act by which Jesus baptizes a believer with, in, or by, fill in your preposition. For those of you who took Greek with me, you know it can mean all of those. Um, in, with, or by, the Holy Spirit, into his body, the church. That's, that's what's taking place. Um, and you can look up those references in First Corinthians 12, 13, or 10 too. Then we ask the question, when does baptism of the Holy Spirit occur? And I argued at conversion. At conversion. And yes, I know, and we'll deal with it in a minute. There are, we talked about some of the, um, the examples in Acts that would seem to conflict with that. Um, and we talked about what was going on there. And I use the analogy of getting upgraded the high-speed internet. In the book of Acts, we're seeing a transition while two covenants are functioning simultaneously. It's as The last verse of Hebrews 8 talks about how um, what is being old and getting ready to vanish is almost ready to disappear. And so you've got these two covenants that are functioning. You've got people moving from one covenant, the old covenant, to the new covenant. We've got the gospel going out and being marked. But by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Just go there real fast. (sighs) For in one body we were all baptized in one spirit we were all baptized into one body so jesus can speak to the entire corporate corinthian church and say this is true of all of us in fact go to second uh, corinthians 13 2 Corinthians 13, a passage where Christians are encouraged periodically to test themselves to see if they are, in fact, Christians. I know it's popular to say, only the devil would want you to doubt whether you're a Christian. Well, him and Paul. Um, first, second Corinthians I mean, there's a morbid way in which we can run around being terrified by not Christians, but it is appropriate periodically to, to examine ourselves. And so whenever come, someone comes to me and says, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't immediately encourage them. I say, okay, tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your Bible reading. Tell me about your fight with sin. Tell me about your repentance. Tell me about your love of the brethren. Tell me about your love of God. And there may well be plenty of fruit and evidences. No, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Or it might well be, I can see why you're concerned. <laughs> You know, there's this gospel and this really wonderful thing, and you should let's talk about that. But Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? Now the logic there is this if you're in the faith, who's in you? And if Jesus isn't in you, you fail the test. Right, and it's not the test of whether you're a second tier baptized by the Holy Spirit believer. It's just are you in the faith? That's the test. So, despite the transition period of Acts and the, you know the, the, the gospel and the Holy Spirit going to Samaria and, and those things, and we talked about that in the previous weeks. By the time Paul's writing the general epistles to the church, it is assumed conversion, baptism, of the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God's in you. Okay. Cool. We good so far? Okay. Um, and so point B how then should we consider some of the accounts in Acts that time period is unique in history there's that reference from Hebrews 8 frequently we see and this is the other thing in Acts we got to understand frequently we see already saved men and women entering into new covenant blessings like Cornelius his prayers have gone up as a memorial to God he's a devout man and a God-fearer how is it possible to please God without faith I'm reading Cornelius as someone saved under the old covenant, and now the new covenant message of the gospel is coming to him, and he's receiving new covenant blessings. And frequently that's what we're seeing happening. Um, okay, what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplish? And here's, here's where we're at point three, and we have, we'll pick up here, okay? Baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplishes a number of things, at least five that I can think of. One, union with Christ. Union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we saw that. By one spirit, we were baptized into one body. Or in one spirit, we are baptized into one body. We, the spirit, as it were, engulfs us. We're dipped, surrounded by, and the notion is a changing of sphere and kingdoms. So Colossians 1, 13 um, Paul can say he has removed us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us to the kingdom of his Son. And so by being in the Spirit, we are in Christ. We are joined and united with Christ. So Paul can say in Romans 6, if you go to Romans 6, 3-4, um, to four, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism united us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It united us with Christ, union with Christ. Two, power to fight sin and grow in truth. Romans eight thirteen, a little chapter or two over to Romans eight. Now I'll pick it up in verse twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Where do you find the strength and power to put to death the deeds of the body? The Spirit. Spirit. The Spirit provides the power to fight sin. Stay in Romans 8, point C. Adoption into God's family. Receipt of the Holy Spirit is responsible for that as well. A few verses later, verse 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions By whom or by manner of which we cry out, Abba, Father. No Holy Spirit, no calling God, Daddy. You're only able, by which, you're only able to call on God as Father because you've received the spirit of adoption. You you see that in the language there? By whom we cry. There's no spirit. You don't get to cry that. That's why you'll never see David referring to God as Dad. David has an intimate relationship with God. It's not till you get to the new covenant that individual people are saying, our father who art in heaven. Israel corporately is God's son, and so Israel as a nation can refer to God as, as father, and Solomon in the dedication prayer of the temple can do that, but no individual Israelite is approaching God as dad until Jesus shows up and says, well, my father works on Sunday, so I do too. No one talked like that. And so by virtue of this spirit, his spirit, we receive adoption into God's family. Point D. What does the baptism of the spirit accomplish? Understanding or insight in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to try to get through this list so we can pick it up in point 4 next week and then summarize the whole thing and be done. Um, Point point 5. E. No, understanding scriptures. Point 4, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 12 to 15, and we'll just read this and we'll call it a morning. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And then we get a purpose statement that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Why have we received the spirit? So that we might understand this. We might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have a mind. Of Christ, by virtue of having the Holy Spirit, you can say, "I have the mind of Christ." And finally, finally, power for serving the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Verses four to 11. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So to summarize, there's a lot of different gifts from the same Spirit. There's a lot of different service, but one Lord. And there's a lot of different activity, but one God who gives power. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And why did God give you a Spirit? Here, finish the sentence. For who's good? No self edifying gifts. Any manifestation of the Spirit that I have is for you all to benefit. One of, my, one of my biggest objections to the common teaching on prayer languages for your prayer closet is it's a self edifying gift. To each, a manifestation of the Spirit was given for the common good. For the common good to one was given the spirit of utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The spirit produces power for serving each other. The whole point of these gifts and these activities is they're to serve each other. The Spirit gives me power to serve you all. The Spirit gives you power to serve us all. And and, and as far as I can track down specific statements of what the baptism and union with the Spirit accomplishes, that's it. The Spirit. By by receiving the Spirit, we are united with Christ. By receiving the Spirit, we're given power to fight sin and grow. By receiving the Spirit, we can call God Dad. By receiving the Spirit, we have insight, the mind of Christ, to understand Scripture. And by receiving the Spirit, we have power to serve. Yes, Alan. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. They do. You just got to keep reading. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and we'll, and we'll get to that specifically when we get to the gift of tongues. I, 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 I'm trying to deal with these 7 I'm trying to deal with the baptism of the Holy Spirit then we'll deal with tongues. What I want to know just one thing, is when we'll look at this and we'll look at this next week, what signs, how do you know if you've received the Holy Spirit? What signs accompany If any, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what we'll pick it up next week. Um, How do you you know? How can you tell if someone's received, been baptized by the Holy Spirit? And we'll pick it up there. Um, Have a good day, you guys. God bless.